Amen. Let's take your Bibles, please. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. As we prepare for revival, don't forget we have our Man Up conference uh, this week as well. And everybody wonders, I suppose, if you haven't been at our church very long, why do we have the Man Up conference and revival services all back to back? Well, there's, there's a method to the madness, and it is a bit of madness sometimes. Uh, for years, they've had the Man Up conference, and we always had the faith men come for our revival services, and so we got the idea, let's invite the faith men and go and sing to the men as well. So they would go to St. Thomas with us, and they would sing to those 400 men that were there, and men love quartet singing, and when you get a room full of men and those guys singing, it was just always a blessing. So we did that as a church to kind of be a blessing to those men, and so we just piggybacked it all together, and uh, all of a sudden, Brother Stone said, let's move it to Bethel. And uh, in some regards, it's less work for our sound guys because they don't have to tear down and set up down there and then bring it back Saturday. But in other regards, it's a lot of work for everybody else as we have to do all the man-up work here. And, uh, but we are looking forward to a great week, and so I want you to pray. Spend some time in prayer for the Man Up Conference starting Friday night and Saturday. If you've not registered yet, please do so. Go online. In the very least, if you can't register online, call us and let us know how many are coming in your group, and we'd appreciate that so much. And uh, that, that way we just make sure we have enough food for everybody as we prepare uh, throughout the remainder of this week. And then Sunday we start our revival services. Now we have our prayer times typically Saturdays at 4.15, and this Saturday, of course, we might be cleaning up here in the building still and go right into prayer. But uh, Brother Hilton is going to host a prayer meeting at midnight on Saturday night, Sunday morning. So 12.01 Sunday morning. And you say, why then? He said, I just want to start the day with prayer. And so if you are interested in in coming to that, you're more than welcome to come at midnight, Saturday night, 12.01 Sunday morning. If you come, we won't worry if you're one minute late. We're trying to make it so it's not confusing. Somebody say, well, midnight, is that, is that Sunday morning or Saturday night? Come Saturday night, Sunday morning, that time, all right? And uh, you want to start the day with prayer. And so there'll be plenty of time to get home and get some rest. And uh, Brother Hilton has a plan of what he wants to do. I'm praying through the auditorium for the people of our church. And so if you're able to make that, we understand not everybody will be, but if you're able to make that, it'll be at midnight, Saturday night. And we look forward to uh, a good time of prayer to lead off our revival services. So encourage, uh, I encourage you to take part in those things. There may also be a prayer list go out this week. We're kind of working through that right now, where you can sign up for a, a block of time if you would say, I, I, I can't drive in at midnight, but I'd like to spend some time in prayer. And so we're going to work on that. Brother Paul. Oh, it's already out there. We get a list out there, and you can sign up through the night if you'd like to get up and pray. Maybe it's your habit to get up early and pray anyway, and so that'd be great if you would start your day praying for revival in Simcoe. We desperately, desperately need it. And then right after that, just a couple weeks later, we have our Easter Resurrection Cantata. And uh, I don't like the word Easter. It has a, there's a kind of a different connotation to Easter, but that's what the world calls it, and so we kind of cater to that a little bit. But I call it Resurrection. I like the word resurrection, and uh, Easter was an Irish holiday, and it had all kinds of different things going on around that, and uh, years ago, the Roman Catholics merged them together and uh, caused, uh, caused all kinds of confusion, really, but it is the resurrection that we are celebrating, amen? And so there are some flyers out there, and I would encourage you to invite your neighbors. I was encouraged yesterday, uh, they did this very low-key, they weren't looking for anybody's glory or approval or applause or what have you, uh, but the... Uh, singles class or the young, young uh, college and career class, I guess is a better way to put it. They're not all single. Uh, they, they came here to the church and they gave away free coffee. They went and bought coffee and they, they had it out and I guess stopped cars and 
gave away free coffee. You put a sign up, free coffee, and we're, you know, we're going we're gonna to do that. And, uh, and then they gave out Easter flyers or resurrection flyers. And so I appreciate uh, the effort, and they put it at their own cost, and they went ahead and, and gave out coffees and flyers to people on Highway 3. And so we're thankful for that. So maybe be creative and uh, give, a, give a, a, a flyer out, and of course we'll have a little gift for them that day, and we just want uh, to be a blessing, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning, and uh, I changed my message this morning very early. I was up and reading and praying, and, and, and again to pray about it, and our schedule for the next few weeks, I thought, you know, it's interesting, we'll be right upon Resurrection Sunday, and uh, I will miss the opportunity to preach on the cross, on the, on the crucifixion. And uh, because uh, just the way our schedule's working out with revival and everything else going on. And, and so I want to spend some time this morning. And I, it was interesting. I, I, uh, I started praying about it and reading the scriptures. And the, I was just reading in 1 Corinthians and the verse grabbed my heart. And then I, I got thinking, well, I, let's, let's have a look at what we are singing this morning. And so uh, my wife and I went down to Ohio for a couple days this week and spent some time uh, with my, my grandson. Somebody said, how's Emily? I said, who's Emily? We got a grandson now, right? And uh, we were down there, and I did the music schedules for May. We're that far out on stuff. And so in the last couple of weeks, I've done music schedules for April and May. I picked all the songs for March uh, just a couple of days ago, not just the specials, but the, the hymns that we will sing and everything. And so I've got a 1,000 songs going through my head, and I couldn't remember exactly what we were singing this morning. And so I, I started working on this sermon, and I thought, I wonder what we were singing. And I pulled it up, and it was all about the cross. I thought, okay, Lord. Enough said. And began to cultivate in my heart. And I came up with this, just from this one verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the perspectives of the cross, or the perspectives of the crucifixion. You know, as it is with anything in life, everybody has a different viewpoint. Everybody looks at things a little bit differently. To some, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, notice what it says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. That's one perspective. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The world is full of people that think the cross is foolishness. The idea that Jesus Christ came to this earth as the only begotten Son of God to live a perfect and spotless life, and to give his life in sacrifice and in ransom for the, the lost of this world, that he would shed his own blood to pay the price for our sins. That's foolishness to a lot of people. Most of those same people don't believe there's such a thing as sin. They don't believe that they are sinners. They don't believe they are lost. I suppose we could take this verse, and I don't mean to do disservice to the scripture this morning, and substitute a lot of other things. We could say the same thing about the Bible, couldn't we? We could say the preaching of the Bible to them that perish is foolishness. They don't understand why we live our lives by this book. But for unto us, I believe, it is the power of God. The word is quick and powerful, the Bible says. So we, we believe that. The idea of heaven to the, a lost and dying world is, is foolishness to the evolutionist who believes we live and we die and there's nothing else. The idea of a heavenly home is foolishness. But for us to believe it is our hope we look forward to that moment that we will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll be reunited with loved ones. There's a family today grieving with that hope in their hearts that they'll see Audrey again. That's not foolishness to us. That is a steadfast hope. We can say that about a lot of things in this life. 
You know, it's interesting as we think about this word this morning, the preaching of the cross, that the words cross, crucify, crucifixion, or crucified, past tense, never appear in the Old Testament. You say, why is that? Because it is not a Jewish concept. This is not how they would treat their own people. Now, they did have a capital punishment system. They would stone people. The Bible says if somebody will remember the woman that was taken in adultery, that the men took up stones. We'll remember that Stephen, the deacon that went out and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, they, they took him and they stoned him. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ had preached some things and cast out demons and into a, swine, a herd of swine. And the Bible says that they were going to throw him off the cliffs. But the Bible says he slipped out quietly. It's interesting, I've heard people say, well, that the Jews did not have the authority to kill Jesus, and that's not true. They did kill people all the time. They stoned people or threw them off cliffs or what have you, but they did not have the authority to crucify him because that was a Roman uh, uh, execution system. They did not have the authority to take somebody to Golgotha and nail him to a cross. And so we, we understand that the Romans ruled with an iron fist and their, their kingdom was a kingdom of fear. Their style of dictatorship was particularly brutal. You know, it's interesting as we read the scriptures, if we were to go to the gospels this morning, and I won't for the sake of time, that the Lord Jesus Christ and the night he was betrayed... The Bible gives great detail about what happened to him. The Bible talks about how he was scourged, how he was beaten. The Bible says that his beard was plucked from his face and he was spit upon. They put a covering over his face and they smote him with a rod and they said, prophesy who hit thee. The Bible says he was marred beyond recognition But when it comes to the crucifixion, here's what the Bible says. When they crucified him. Or there they crucified him. It gives no details whatsoever. You wouldn't even know. You wouldn't even know that they nailed him to the cross if Thomas did not say after his resurrection, unless I see the nail prints in his hands, we have no record of him being nailed to the cross in the gospel accounts. Think about that. That's become so synonymous with the crucifixion that we we say, no, no, pastor, you're you're lying to us. It's got to be there. They nailed him to the cross. The Bible never says that. It's only when Thomas says he was nailed to the cross that we know it after that he rose from the grave. I was as stunned as you were when when I looked that all up, when I read it all out. It's almost like when we got to the crucifixion, and by the way, all four gospel writers record it, that it was anticlimactic to what Christ had already gone through, but I want to assure you it was not. For Paul says it's the preaching of the cross. To them that perish is foolishness. But to us who believe it is the power of God. I believe it is like this. Crucifixion had become so commonplace that all the gospel writers had to say was he was crucified and it provoked images of horror in the minds of its readers. 
They didn't have to describe it. They didn't have to say that they laid his body, his back that was already bleeding from the whips, upon a wooden slivered cross and took his hands and his feet and nailed him there. Never had to say it. Because every Jewish person that opened the Bible, the accounts of the gospel writers, in their minds were visions of horror when they heard that phrase, there they crucified him. For us, we've studied it out, haven't we? We've explored what it means to be crucified and we understand the pain and the agony that our Savior went through and we understand his hours on the cross and those things that he cried out and the agony that he must have felt. And, and some might say that none of it was compared to that moment when he said, my father, why hast thou forsaken me? The depths of loneliness and despair that his father had turned his face away. We have the gospel writer's perspectives, but I want you to notice in the word of God, we have a lot of perspectives on the crucifixion. I want to just give you those, I have six of them today, but I promise they won't take long. I want you to think about these with me this morning as we think about the cross of Calvary and, and, and what it meant to a different group of people. First of all, I want you to see this morning to the Jews, it was prudent. To the Jews, it was prudent. You see, what is prudent? It means it is necessary to reach a desired end. It is something that we would employ or do to reach a desired end. You see, they could have stoned him. But instead, Caiaphas decided, I'm going to use the Roman system. I'm going to use the governor, and I'm going to get in good with him. I'm going to appeal to Pilate and to Herod and to Caesar, and I'm going to let them know that I am their friend by crucifying the Lord. And so I want you to turn this morning in the scriptures to John chapter 11. You can keep your finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and look, if you will, in John chapter 11 this morning. We see the perspective of the Jews on crucifixion. The Bible says in verse 47, if you'll look there, John chapter 11, verse 47, the Bible says, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? What are we going to do now? You say, what now? What is now referring to? If you were to read forward just a couple verses, you would find that Lazarus has just been risen from the grave. The Lord Jesus Christ stood at his tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible says many people came to Mary and heard the testimony of Lazarus being raised by the power of Jesus Christ. And many of them believed on Jesus. And the Pharisees said, what are we going to do now? Many people are turning to Jesus. What are we going to do now? Look what it says in verse 47. What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. That's why he said it was prudent to them. We need to get rid of Jesus. Because if Jesus is allowed to continue, people will turn their hearts to him. And the Romans aren't going to trust us anymore. And they're going to send more people and more soldiers. And we're going to lose all control. Understand that the Jews could only rule. Caiaphas could only be the high priest. And others could only hold certain offices at the grace of the Romans. But he was afraid of losing all of it. 
He says, if this is allowed to continue, the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, ye know nothing at all. How many of you think Caiaphas was a rude individual? Can I, I, I don't like to use certain words in the pulpit. Let me just say it this way. The guy was a jerk. He really was. These are his own people, his friends, his colleagues that he is conspiring with. And he says, you all don't know anything. You know nothing at all. In other words, I have a plan. Look up here. And notice what he says. Verse 50. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. You see, what is he referring to? He's saying it is better that we kill Jesus than allow the Romans to come and kill all of us. It is better that we rid ourselves of this problem. Let us show Rome that we can take care of this rebel, that we can handle this problem. He says it is expedient, it is necessary, it is prudent for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness into the city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. And many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he was, he should show it that they might take him. To the Jews, it was simply a mean to the end. If we allow Jesus to die, it'll keep the Romans from killing all of us. But Caiaphas simply used it as an excuse to bring about his desired goals. I want to get rid of Jesus. He was losing control of his people. You know, to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we must surrender to him. So many people think we're losing control of our lives when we give it over to Jesus. No, no, you are gaining control. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he gives control back. He, he, he is the one that controls, and he is the one that leads. He is a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path through the Holy Word of God. And he guides us and he keeps us. And if we will just simply learn to trust him. And Caiaphas saw all that slipping away. And instead of surrendering, he connived in his heart how he might destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. So to the Jews, it was prudent. But to the Romans, it was political. Look at John chapter 19. If you would read the Gospels from beginning to end, you would find this. The Romans paid very little attention to Jesus. They weren't worried about him. Even Pilate said, what wrong has he done? I, I don't understand. I can find no fault in him. He was nothing more than somebody that was causing the Jews problems. And they Romans didn't care about that. As long as it didn't lie at their doorstep. But to the Romans, it became political. In John chapter 19, we read in verse 1, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. You say, why did he do that? Simply to appease the Jews. He felt that if he 
scourged him and made a mockery of him, that would satisfy the Jews and they would lay off this talk of crucifixion. The Bible says in verse two, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe and said, hail, king of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know what I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. He turned over his authority as a Roman to crucify unto the Jews. Take him. He's yours to do with what you please. The Roman soldiers would come and assist the Jews in crucifying the Savior. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And by our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that, he was the more afraid. You better be afraid to think that he might be the son of God. And went again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest not thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that, it was political. He's made himself a king. And whoever makes himself a king is against Caesar. And if you are against Caesar, you are not his friend especially if you're for this one who calls himself the king of the Jews. And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, verse 13, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover. And about the sixth hour, he saith unto the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. And two others with him, on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Why did Pilate crucify him? His crime was listed above his head. He is the king of the Jews. For Pilate, it was simply political. He could not allow another to show him up and, and cause problems with Caesar. And so he acquiesced to the Jews and he crucified Jesus Christ all because of political power and gain. Look at verse 20, and we're almost done this section. 
This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I believe Pilate wrote it the way he did because he wanted the Romans to know that he was loyal. That no other man would call himself king of the Jews and live. That was Herod who was the king of the Jews, who answered only to Caesar. To the Romans, it was political. But let me say this, to God, it was providential. To God, it was providential. You'll remember that the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage himself said, there's no power given unto thee except it comes from above. God has allowed this to take place. In Isaiah chapter 53, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet writes these words, He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. This was God's plan. The Bible says all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that when man sinned, there would be a seed of a woman born that would bruise the serpent's head. It was the first prophecy that we know of, of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to save his people. And we know that he could only save them by dying in their place because of our sin. Friends, we've mostly read scripture this morning. Well, that was the point of this message, and I'm not done. Don't zip up your Bibles yet. That's the cue sometimes in church. I, I notice it gets close to lunch and people start, I hear zippers. Don't, don't do that. We've just read passage after passage about what Jesus went through. Friend, don't ever shy away from the portions of Scripture that scare us, that make us squeamish, that bother us. To, to think of the cross of Calvary is not an easy thing. To think of the beatings that he took should humble us before him because that beating was yours and that scourge ought to have been yours and that crown of thorns that pierced his, his skull should have been ours and, the, and the, the nails that he took and the cross that he bore all should have been ours because the wages of sin is death. But our God had a plan to save us. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus reveals that he knew that plan. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, you know that after two days is the feast of the Passover and the Son of Man is to be betrayed and to be crucified. It was all in the providential care of our Father. To God, it was providential. To the Romans, it was political. To the Jews, it was prudent. But to the lost... It is preposterous. Look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You say, why is it preposterous? Because I needed a P word to go for foolishness. Preposterous means it makes no earthly sense. And it really doesn't, does it? <laughs> That's because our finite minds are start trying to understand an infinite God. 
Our, our minds and our hearts that are deceitfully wicked, the Bible says, are trying to understand a perfect, holy, righteous God and the plan that he has to redeem mankind. So the preaching of the cross to them that perish, the Bible says, is foolishness. There's all kinds of people out there today that think it's a myth. There's nothing true about it. Can I say this? They have not met our Savior. They don't know our God. They have not known his Holy Spirit's pleadings and movings in their lives. They have not sensed his comfort and peace in a time of sorrow. They have not known the conviction he brings when we sin. They don't understand the, the power he has to change the life. We have witnessed recently the, the power of the gospel in the lives of families and how it's changed them from top to bottom. And Maria was testifying what a change in their home since Samuel, Katrina, and the kids have all accepted Christ as Savior. That's the power of the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. To the world, that is foolishness. They'll never understand why we go to church three times a week. That's just foolishness. For us, some of us, we wish it was more. We wish we could gather more and sing those songs of praise and worship with the choir and preach the word of God. They'll never understand why we tithe. We understand the power of God. He's able to supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. But he'll take care of me. They don't understand faith. They don't understand trusting but those that have been touched by Jesus understand. To the lost, it is preposterous. But let me give you another. To the believer, it is powerful. To the believer, it is powerful. I'm sure today we could take testimonies all over this room of that time when God touched your life. Some of you today are maybe treading water. You haven't experienced for a while. You say, I just I haven't felt that moving in the Lord for a while. I just, my heart doesn't get excited at the, the old hymns anymore. And I just don't seem to, you know, I see some people with tears coming down their face, but I just don't, I don't sense that. You need revival. You need to plead with God. Because for us that believe, it is the power of God. And I want, to, I want to say this. I believe not only is it the power of God to save you, it is a power that continues. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. His hand is not shortened that he cannot save. I think we have seen the power of God on display lately as people have come to Jesus Christ and we've seen the waters of baptism stirred once again and God has poured out upon us in a, in a very special way. And, and, and friends, that ought to excite us. Not a desire. I, I got to be honest. I, I came to church this morning and I was upset. He said, what were you upset about? I didn't have anybody to baptize. We've been baptizing for a month straight. I love it. I, I, I get on, say the staff, give me some more. Let's go and find somebody. Let's, let's tell somebody about Jesus. Let's see the, the power of God at work. For us, I believe it is the power of God. In conclusion, let me give you this, though. And here's, here's what's important. In order for it to be powerful, it must be personal. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved. It is the power of God. Us. There's, there's them and us. 
There's them and us. I'm not trying to draw some line in the, in the sand and say that we're better than anybody else. I'm just saying there's the lost and there's the saved. There's those that believe and there's those that don't believe. There's those that have trusted in Jesus Christ and, and, and been born again. And there's those that are on their way to a crisis eternity because they've rejected the Savior. There's them and there's us. And if you are part of us today, it's because you made it personal. There are too many churches today that say, well, I've been to those places. I've been to those funerals and those weddings. And they say, well, Jesus Christ died for our sins. Isn't it good we're all going to heaven? Oh, he died for all, but you have to make it personal. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And you must trust in him. And you must believe that he died to pay the price for your sins. And you must believe that he shed his blood. And you must believe that you're a sinner. And you must call unto him. And whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You must make it personal. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And I'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 4. There's a great display here of us and them. You say, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't talk about like that. You shouldn't label people. Let me tell you this. One day, God's going to separate the sheep from the goats. One day, we're going to find that there's a Lamb's book of life, and whosoever was not written in that Lamb's book of life shall be cast in like a fire. Hey, isn't it better that they find out now? Huh? Isn't it better that they hear the truth today? And stand before God and turn their eyes to you and say, why didn't you ever tell me? Hebrews chapter 4, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. You see the difference? The gospel is available to all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall save. Whosoever shall come shall take of this tree of life freely. The Bible gives us the invitation that it's open for all. But it must be mixed by faith, with faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. So what is that? Grace is what God does. And faith is what you must do. You must trust in him, and by grace he will save you. He will give you this gift of eternal life. Now look down a little bit more in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. By the way, I don't have time, but the scripture goes back and forth in Hebrews chapter 4, us and them, us and them, us and them. But then after chapter, verse 9, you never see them again. He only gives the benefits for us. Notice what he says. There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man shall fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we 
have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Look at this. Let us, therefore, come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I'm so glad that I'm part of us that I know Jesus, that I can go boldly to the throne of grace, that there's a time of rest for the people of God. God has benefited us, but you must trust in him. You must put your faith in him today. In order for the gospel to be powerful, it must be personal. Have you trusted him today? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. The piano's gonna begin to play, and why don't we stand to our feet? Let me ask you this today. Do you know Jesus as your savior? As we reflect on the cross of Calvary today and what Jesus did for us, let me say this, for the Romans it was political, but I'm glad that there were some Romans that saw that this truly was the Son of God. The soldier that stood at the foot of the cross. For the Jews, it was prudent. Caiaphas and their crew wanted him crucified. But so many came to Jesus. So many multitudes. And that's why they did it, because there were so many Jews being saved. They were so upset about it. To those that perish, it is foolishness. And maybe today, that's right where you are. This is just a bunch of nonsense, preacher. You might be of the line that I come to church because I believe in a God, and I want to worship God, and I want to think about this, and and, and I reflect on Jesus as a good person. He was a good teacher. And so he helps me. But I don't believe for a moment he's the son of God, that he was crucified for my sins. Friends, all we can do for you in that case is pray that the Holy Spirit of God would convict your heart. It's not I that can save you. Only God can save you. But could I ask you to do this today? If you are here and you're maybe an agnostic, and that's kind of your approach, that I, I believe Jesus was a good man, a, a good teacher. I, I'm going to say I disagree with you 100%. But I'm going to ask you this. If you are sincere, would you pray right now and say, God, if what the Bible says is true, if Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, would you convince my heart of it today? Would you help me to understand? Give yourself a chance to know the truth. Jesus said the truth will make you free. I can't convince you. Only God's Holy Spirit can. Christians are praying for you right now. Well, maybe there's somebody here today who say, Preacher, I know for a fact I'm not saved. If I were to die today, I don't know that I'd spend eternity in heaven. I've always believed what, what some of those churches teach, that, that Jesus died and we're all okay. We've been baptized. We do the catechism. We take the Lord's table or communion or whatever they might call it. And from that, it merits grace. No, a personal faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that will save you. For by grace are you saved through faith. The wages of sin is death, but the gift, and you can put the word grace in there too. It's the word charis or gift, which also can be translated grace. The gift of God, the grace of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know him? Have you trusted him today? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If God has spoke to your heart, would you step out and come right now? 
Uh, you might be waiting for music. I think our piano player is busy in the junior church this morning. So don't wait for music. Just come. Come to this altar. Let somebody deal with you, show you what the gospel says. We'll take the Bible and show you what it says about having eternal life through Jesus Christ. There's the one say, preacher, I'm not sure I'm saved. Would you slip up your hand? If you can't walk the aisle, would you at least raise your hand and let me pray for you? I will not call you out and I'm not going to embarrass you. I promise you that. You say, oh, you're, you're kind of confrontational. One day you'll stand before God. You won't have to worry about standing before Alfieri. Don't worry about me. Just get alone with God right now. Allow him to speak to your heart because one day you will answer to him. So one say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. Would you slip up your hand? Let me pray. I won't use your name and I won't, I won't call you out. I promise you that. But don't you leave here today without knowing Jesus as your Savior.